Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me with a sheaf of papers, Lucy. I do, a metaphorical sheaf of papers. Yeah, I'm rustling them metaphorically as we speak. How are you doing, Alex? I'm absolutely fine, in a sort of gothic novel at the minute. You're in a gothic novel. I am in a gothic novel. I'm sitting in the hills and the mist has descended. Well, in my sheaf of papers, there's all sorts of things to get through. One of them is a shout out to a subscriber and listener. I'm not going to give his name. We don't give names out, do we, on this? But it's that you met two of our editors recently for lunch, I think. And I think has been a subscriber to the paper for 40 years and was very nice about the podcast, Alex. So that's nice to hear, isn't it? It's extremely nice to hear. I think he lives in, in Washington. So if you know who you are, hello and, and thank you very much. for Thank you very much box. for listening and we're glad that you enjoy it. We really are. And um, there's another thing, another TLS editor who shall remain nameless for now said to me, oh, could you do some gardening tips? And I, I I was a bit surprised. I said, oh, yeah, I'd always like to do that. But I, I thought, you know, maybe we should try and stay on topic. And he said, oh, no, because it's really useful if I'm listening. Uh, and then and then if you remind me to do bits of gardening, then that, that it sort of kills two birds with one stone. What do you think, Alex? Well, look, I'm sorry to say that I'm in a fever of anxiety at the minute. I'm at that point where you think, yes, it's all still to play for, but I'm already late. No, you're not late, are you? There's potatoes. Yeah. Potato chitting, if that's the sort of thing. Yeah, actually, I am doing that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I am chitting my there's, potatoes. That's true. There's also sweet peas. I have actually sown my sweet peas. You, have you sown your sweet peas, Alex? No. Well, but, no, I'm not selling you off. You could. I have, that's but all. you are a bit. Uh, but I have <laughs> gathered, I've gathered my sweet pea seeds and they are rebuking me. You've gathered, are they your own sweet pea seeds? Some are, some aren't. Well, that's very impressive. You see, I just went and bought them enthralled to the capitalist machine. Oh, don't worry. I've bought plenty too. I mean, I'm barely, if this helps, I barely go to the supermarket at the minute without tossing a packet of seeds into in among my carrots and pints of milk. Yep. Yeah. Does yeah. that count? Yeah, of course it does. So in short, there's not that much to do yet, but... A lot of reading. A lot yes, of reading. Planning and tomatoes, I would say. I keep I haven't done my tomatoes. I think it's worth probably worth sowing tomato seeds now, isn't it? Because they need yeah, a long Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, they need a long time. And peppers. Peppers also, I think. Get your peppers and chilies going. And okay. get a nice I've been reading this. This isn't my advice. This is a natural gardener's advice. Get a nice variety of, of peppers and chilies going. 
Yep. 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 If you can stand the chili peppers, which I can't because I'm uh, they're too hot for me, but they do look very lovely. That's why you do a variety. You yeah, that's true. Throw some milder ones. Anyway. Some ones as well. OK, that's gardening. Also, just lots and lots of we haven't gone through what's been in the paper for a while. Um, there's lots of wonderful things. There's a there's a, a lead piece on A.I., I was just thinking about this because we were talking, weren't we, with Eric Naiman about AI mm. and about mm. he was talking about how he saw it sort of filtering through the, the work of, of some of his students sometimes. This is from the other side, a professor of computer science, uh, talking about how close is it close to a breakthrough in terms of consciousness, you know, because there are some people who worry that it really is. Well, perhaps I won't give you a spoiler. <laughs> go, and buy, go and buy the TLS and find out. Find out what he thinks, whether we're going to be run run by robot overlords. There's also a brilliant piece by Margaret Drabble on a kind of literary consequences, game of literary consequences that happened um, in the 60s. And Oh, that sounds really intriguing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And a review of The Long-Winded Lady, which we also talked about a couple of weeks ago. A lovely review by Lucy Scholes. I'm going to throw in something that I shall be heading for, which is a review of a book about life as a Carmelite nun. Yes. Yes, there is that as well. Yeah, there's all sorts of riches. No particular reason. I just find that, you know, those kind of stories deeply fascinating. Yes, yes, indeed. But what have we got coming up this week, though, Alex? Yes, indeed. This week we have comedian, actor and poet Tim Key on his new book, Chapters. And Devani Losa goes on the hunt for runaway women. But first... Tim Key will be well known to many of our listeners as a comedian and actor who's appeared as a sidekick to Steve Coogan's Alan Partridge, a contestant on Taskmaster and House of Games, and a character in comedies including The Reluctant Landlord and Brassic. I mention those two in particular because they're my favourites. But he's also a poet with three collections in the last three years, for which he works with designer and bookbinder Emily Juniper. He's joining us now to talk about his new book of poems, Chapters. Hi, Tim. Hello. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry to mention The Reluctant Landlord and Brassic, <laughs> in which, Brassic, in which I think you were a kind of wizard. Yeah, I haven't watched that. Oh, do you not watch? Do you, you don't watch your performances once you've performed them? Not always. I sometimes do, and I sometimes don't. But um, I've seen Brassic and very much enjoy Brassic, but I haven't been able to stomach watching myself in Brassic. Oh well, it's very fun. It's a very funny episode. Oh, that's good. It's okay. very, well, maybe very I'll, good. Maybe I'll do that after this. But like, I don't. I don't read my own book reviews either. I don't mean reviews of my books. I mean ones that I've written, unless I think they're particularly got brilliant turns of phrase. But in general, I don't. Anyway, yes. Tim, tell yes. us about chapters. When I say it's a work in progress, I really mean it. This is actually how it appears on the page, isn't it? As conversations between between you and your designer, Emily. I guess it does. Yeah, it's sort of um, it kind of gets written in front of your eyes, I suppose. I suppose the conceit is that um, at the start of the book, I decide to write a book. And then at the start of the first chapter, I arrive with a great raft of poems. And then Emily Juniper, my designer, manages, manages me and helps me turn that into a finished book, which is not a million miles away from what happens in real life. <laughs> but do you have to, as you do in the book, keep buying her gin and peppermint? 
Which I must yeah. say sounds like a disgusting drink. I was so intrigued about gin and peppermint. What sort of peppermint? I don't know. Is that a real thing? I reckon. I think sometimes, you know, I guess a, anyone who sort of does writing is sometimes prone to be a bit of a magpie. I will have seen that somewhere. I think mm. I might have read it in another book. It wouldn't surprise me if someone drinks a gin and peppermint in a book by Patrick Hamilton, maybe. Yes, yes. It sounds a bit, but it does sound disgusting. I just thought if she was drinking so much gin and peppermint, she'd be really ill and unable to work so closely with you on your book. She'd have tremendously fresh breath, though, wouldn't she? Uh, she would. She'd be marvellous. Um, Lucy, I think that you know when you go into a pub and you see that they're quite often uh, sort of crystal decanters this is old-fashioned pubs and not the kind of trendy places you in London frequent Lucy <laughs> but hmm. they're uh they're sort of they might have a kind of orange cordial and a lime cordial you mean creme de menthe there might be a bright green one and that's peppermint but it's cordial rather than creme de menthe boozy creme okay. de menthe. yeah I've got to say I've never seen it in real life okay all right but I stick by it I love I mean I love seeing Emily Juniper drink the gin and peppermints, fictional Emily <laughs> Juniper. I think I'd hate to see Emily Juniper in real life putting away eight gin and peppermints. Exactly. So here's the thing. I really thought when I read the book before I started reading about the book that Emily Juniper was, because it's a great name, I thought she yeah. was a made-up person. But she's a real and quite amazing person. She's a bookbinder and she does all sorts of interesting things. She is one of the greats. I mean, I completely agree. I think I'd be very proud of making up the name, even Emily Juniper, let alone the character of Emily Juniper. But fortunately, I didn't have to. She came ready made as an actual person, <laughs> a beautiful, high achieving, independent designer girl with the perfect name to match. Mm. And um, yeah, I was very, very lucky to meet her. We met socially, we're friends. And then and actually, she wasn't even a designer or bookmaker when I met her. And then it's just, it's all about who you know, isn't it? What, not what you know. And also <laughs> whether they decide to retrain. And, oh, Emily Juniper, and then work with you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. My Emily Juniper just suddenly left London and went to Falmouth to learn how to be a bookmaker. Oh, she is in Falmouth because we, 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 we hear lots of things along the way. And the wonderful, <laughs> yeah. wonderful in the conversations between you, in, in between the bits, um, Alex had noted this as well. She's not always nice about what she's just read. <laughs> no, there's a running no. commentary, and it's not always a, uh, it's not uncritical. Put it that way. I think that's the main way I fictionalised Emily Juniper because in real life, she is kind about my poetry to the point of it being almost unhelpful. I mean, she she loves it all. I don't think I can remember a single time where she's sort of gone. Sometimes I say, look, we need to lose three of these poems for this chapter to make it all, you know, because we haven't got enough pages. And she's no help at all because she's sort of, she's really into it in a way that's probably unhelpful in the grand scheme Right, of I was going to say, because if, yeah. if you had that, if you had dialogues of you going, let's get rid of one and, and somebody saying, no, it's just too brilliant, that wouldn't have the same effect. <laughs> Wouldn't have the same effect, would it? I don't think that wouldn't would have, have the, the undercutting effect. effect that it has. I think that would make me sound like a madman. If I've invented a character who just loves everything I do, <laughs> that would be a problem. It's one way of doing it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that she has a real issue with in this book, which is called Chapters, are indeed the chapters, which I think to her seem wildly random. 
And having read it, I can't disagree with fictional <laughs> Emily Juniper because they are, well, to, to talk us through some of your chapter headings. Yeah, I think fictional Emily Juniper, as always, has a bit of a point. I mean, it does start with, it just, it starts okay. I mean, it starts with chapter one and chapter two. But in fairness to fictional me, I'm just happy to have chapters, chapter one and chapter two. It's Emily who kicks off and says that they should be the months of the year. And anyway, after a while, it, we, it breaks down into Emily and I having various disputes as to what the chapters should be and what is the point of chapters. And then by halfway through the book, there's chapters called Hairdressing, London, Ambition and the News. And then by the end, there's a chapter called the 2022 FIFA World Cup Doha. That one really threw me because it was after November and December. And you think, okay. Oh dear, that's terrible. There's going to be, you know, we've done the conclusion of the year. And what's quite funny is, I suppose, the, you know, life imitating art. I do remember me and Emily Juniper, brackets, real, having a actual conversation about whether we should lose that chapter. And yeah, I think there was, there's a lot of arguments for losing it. But in the end, I, I don't know. I, I suppose once you've, created around it a kind of infrastructure of arguments fictional like it's actually quite confusing talking about this book i don't think i've done this before but there's there's sort of a confusing there's an infrastructure around that chapter now which means it sort of mm. merits its place because yes, we're discussing yeah. why it should go <laughs> <laughs> yes because she goes into quite a lot of detail about yes why why it might not be a good idea therefore it does have to be in I mean, the other reason it's in is that I, I don't have an editor. Ah. I, think, I, think, I, don't, I think I don't have an editor as an answer to a lot of your questions, actually. Well, I do think now, Lucy, <laughs> having seen the issue with the temporal structure of the book, Lucy, you may become, you know, we, we see that he's got form for pulling in people he meets in various contexts into his project. You could be the editor. It's very true. That. You just yeah. said we need the World Cup a little earlier on. Yeah. Oh, no, no. yeah. I, I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't dream of it. One thing I do want to ask about, I wasn't going to, going to fixate on the World Cup, actually, but it was one thing which I know that Alex has also noted as well, is there's a lot in the, there's a lot of, we meet a lot of people and animals doing, doing various things in various situations, vignettes. There's a lot of fat face, the shock, <laughs> like really a lot. Oh no! It's a real theme, isn't it? I, I was beginning to think you were sponsored by Fat. Face. Exactly. We have listeners around the world and of all sorts of backgrounds and generations, and, and we should say mm, here yes, that a Fat shop, Face is a shop yeah. uh, in the UK that sells. I don't know how I would describe it. Sort of relaxed leisure wear. Oh, is yeah. it surfy clothes? Okay, is it's it? not. I don't know. I, I think I like relaxed leisure wear as a as a way of describing it. Okay. It's quite kind of comfortable clothes, I suppose. Quite a lot of them fairly, very mildly, but also quite heavily branded with the word fat face. Yes. I mean, as in, it's not like enormous on any of the clothes, but I think it's on all of them. You see fat face written written on the, on the lapel of everything. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know why. The thing is, I guess it's just an instinctive thing, isn't it? Where... I just remember writing Fat Face in one of my poems. And I don't know where Fat Face fits in the structure of the UK where, or where it's, what its place is, but it felt very right for my poems. <laughs> and I don't think it's even that Fat Face is particularly 
you know, naff or derided. I think it's just sort of the type of place that you only really think about when you walk past a fat face. And so it kind of makes me smile when fat face. I think it's in the book about the right amount because... Um, I di- No, I didn't say it was too much. I just said it was noteworthy. I think it's kind of bananas that fat faces referenced once. So I think the fact that there's 30 fat faces in the book <laughs> is kind of a, is bad. And so in that, for, for that reason, I like it. I was just thinking that I don't think I have any garments or accessories from fat face. And then I remembered that the place that I most encounter it in is the airport. So I probably do have an unwise straw hat. Because you know you can it's it's that it's Perfect. a ubiquity, isn't it? It's a sort of it's exactly. not what we call cutting edge fashion. I don't think the young people are wearing fat face. But I think you're right. You can't escape it. It is in the airport, and I I, I also do live comedy, and um, I've started saying quite a lot when I come on stage. I go to a different place on tour. I guess well, I'll just arrive in. I was in Leeds on Saturday, and I say, yeah, it's great to be here. You've got a fantastic fat face. And people really enjoy that. Because, because, but do you every, check? You don't need to check. Uh, you really different. don't. You really no. don't need to check. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, the point enough. about fat face, Lucy. And indeed I've got Pret. It now. I've got and it. indeed yeah. Pret, which also appears. And Pret appears in one, one of its incarnations as a sort of rather absurdist moment where you picture the your server in Pret asking you to do something awful to his boss and then you'll get your things for free although not a smoothie that's not in the deal yeah yeah and so there is this kind of very evidently i think that the listeners will understand a strain of the absurd throughout your poetry is this where it comes from is it a love of absurdism that's got you into oh yeah i must be yeah i think i must be drawn to the absurd but I suppose that's probably quite a good example of the two of the clash of something mad happening, but in a very, very mundane, very recognisable place. It doesn't really get much more recognisable than just some bloke stood in Pret. And I think that one is based on, I think someone, do you know in Pret, they, um, they're allowed to give you a coffee for free. Did you know that? They do sometimes, yeah. I got one once, but only, yeah. I think, because I was heavily pregnant. I probably shouldn't have been drinking coffee. <laughs> yeah. Did they not I offer think... you a decaf, Lucy? No, they just. I think they just felt sorry for me because I was just, you know, hauling myself around and I got a free coffee, so it was great. Sorry, do go on. Well, I think that that's... I, I once got one, and I would imagine I probably wrote that poem on the same day. I think mm. that's sort of the kind of... Um, coming together of something very recognisable with something um, mad or extraordinary or shameful. I think, I haven't analysed my own poems, don't worry about that, but I feel like if you were to go through them, that would be a theme. And as you say, some strange things happening with animals is also a theme. I was going to get to animals, actually. Can we talk (laughs) about animals? Let's Let's talk animals. Let's do it. Somebody turns into a pig, somebody turns into a lobster, and then you undercut anything that we might be able to ask you by talking about Kafka in the dialogue and saying, oh, someone's already done that. And you say, yeah, I know, and then go back to the poem. So we we can't ask about that. It's bad, isn't it? I'm second-guessing the podcast. Having your cake and eating it. (laughs) Um, there's one one poem about a pig which I very much understand is in twice frankly just in the book twice and then the one about splitting up the zoo and sharing out the animals all around what's going on do you think well I think in the one in the zoo I think that's just sort of a um 
a leveling up poem, I suppose. But I mean, I'm not a very traditionally uh, <laughs> political creature. So, but then sometimes, like again, I suppose somewhere in my mind, you know, I've got Radio Five Live on half the time or LBC, and they're probably talking about leveling up. And then maybe later that day, without even knowing it, I've kind of written a poem that's sort of based on that sort of thing. But again, ridiculous. I mean, you gives a spider to Preston, and uh, yeah, kind of... yeah, it's a bit silly. It is a bit silly. <laughs> I will give you that. Thinking no, about no. your about how the poems come out. I mean, again, the persona of the poet that you create in in the book is one of somebody brimming with poems your poems are just spinning out of you all the time is that how it is or is it a bit trickier than that yeah no I'd say that is how it is as a rule I mean I think the stuff the writing I've always done which I've enjoyed the most has always been the stuff that's kind of just comes out very naturally and flows flows out I mean I suppose you'd be mad to prefer any other style of writing as a writer the stuff I'm less keen on is you know vexing over how to structure a you know film script or how to create some kind of sitcom out from scratch and so the stuff that I always hopefully always will enjoy is after a hard day not being able to write anything because it's all too difficult going to the pub for last orders and writing some poems is kind of don't know it just resets me and and is always a fun thing and I feel like I'm very lucky like that that I've got at least one strand of what I do is always very enjoyable and very is not something I associate with work and being told off it's it's just something (laughs) I associate with you know finishing it and it takes 90 seconds and it's you know like 70 words long and I look at it and think yeah I smile and think that's quite a that's a fun little poem and then maybe nothing will ever happen to it maybe no one will ever read it um but maybe it will go into a book or I'll say it on stage and so I think Mm. there's a I write a lot of them and so uh, rather than trying to somehow write 90 poems and then going back to them and thinking well I guess this afternoon I should go and have another look at poem 60 they're all done they're all in never change Mm. a word once they're in and it's just kind of writing enough poems that I'm choosing between 500 poems. And so hopefully the 90 that I do choose will be, there'll be some kind of quality control kind of worked in. It reminded me, partly because of the way it looked, that, I mean, I know you don't do the drawings yourself and it's the legendary Emily Juniper who does that. And I wondered if you see yourself in this, so that line of people, a bit like what Spike Milligan was doing. It's not the same, but there's, there's an air of it. And, a bit, and John Lennon, that kind mm. of feel does that yeah does that ring a bell yeah I think but I mean it's obviously not something that I would <laughs> compare no, they're good forebears no, no, they? you know what would, <laughs> yes. yeah they're very nice that's very nice yeah John Lennon was fantastic wasn't he yeah he, he had a great career but um yeah oh, he Milligan, did, actually, but he, to be fair. also also his books <laughs> yeah you know I like those he's a very witty guy but they were both people with a bit of an edge as well yeah exactly what, what I would say is probably none of that is accidental in terms of I just get on with things but also Emily Juniper is she's very conscientious and she's very smart and so when we met up in Deshoom we meet in Deshoom me and Emily we don't meet in prep we meet in Deshoom and we talk about what the next thing could be and yeah when we talked about this we talked about that sort of stuff the idea of it being 
a smaller thing and the idea of it being, you know, very idiosyncratic and very, but like other books of poetry. And so what Emily will do then is go out into the field. She'll just look at everything. She'll go to the bookshops. She'll look at old stuff. She'll work out. So the, the design of the cover and things like that, it's nothing's by accident with Emily. She's tried to create something that's kind of, that feels like the book is taking itself very seriously. And then I think with the illustrations, she would 100% have looked through books of poetry and other books and trying to work out, you know, how to judge what illustrations should be and how regularly through the book and how prominent they should be and all of that stuff. Plus, of course, she's really good at illustrating, which was a, a relief. They are beautiful. <laughs> well, you they're just lo- don't know what lovely. someone's capable of. And she's always designed these books, but very rarely. she. I remember when I first asked if she could illustrate something, you don't want to get yourself into a pickle where she does an illustration. I look at it and go, oh, love your design. Don't like your illustration because that's really awkward. Mm. So when she first did some illustrations for a book, a couple of books ago, I just, it was just so beautiful. Her, I love her illustrations so much because they're sort of very timeless and very... They're very elegant as well, aren't they? They really are. They're really good and they've got a real mixture of that it looks like it's been done by someone who's really good at drawing and who's got a really fun sense of humor Mm. Mm. this is not the only sort of pictorial element of the poems i mean because i know you've got you've got playing cards based on the poems yeah i do actually that was i think one of our first projects we did together me and emily where her company is called utter and press and what she likes to do is find some spoken word on stage and then turn it back into a written word on a page, basically. And so we became friends and she enjoys watching my shows. And in my shows, I tend to read all of my poems of playing cards. And so that felt like a really kind of oh. route one, but quite an obvious way of us collaborating sort of for the first time. And it was so nice. So she on stage I'm just getting these cards and then throwing them down on the floor and um yeah Emily said let's make 52 of these and yeah on those there's little illustrations and things and there's also yeah a lot of the stuff a lot of the component parts kind of arrived in those in those playing cards really because you have the poems and the illustrations but you also have little snippets of dialogue between Emily Juniper and you also crucially have Emily Juniper learning on the job how to make playing cards which is Ever since I've known her, it's all she's done is when we wrote the first book, she was simultaneously having to work out how to go through the whole process of creating and selling a book because she does everything. Gosh, it's really very different from other work that you do, which is, you know, might be work with the BBC. You've done loads of different TV. Obviously, you do lots of live gigs as well. I mean, it's a lot. There are a lot of strands in your work life. Yeah, there are. And I think you sort of veered towards it there when you said it's different. I think it's less different from the live stuff. I think it's more different from, you know, right, I do a radio show, which I I think I'm attracted to that because also there's slightly less moving parts in a radio show than there is in a TV show. And I think I'm attracted to that feeling that, A, it will definitely happen, which you get with a live show. You just literally book a venue and then you have to make sure you've made a show and with the book we know it'll happen because 
there literally isn't another adult in our hemisphere telling us is we can't do it because it's just us we are literally everything whereas if you try and write a film or try and write a tv show then there's a lot of moving parts and you know the result is something the result can be something absolutely fantastic because you get more and more people who are really good at what they do combining and you know as a team to make something which is greater than the sum of its parts but there is something there's a part of me that just likes the idea of two people making something Tim, thanks so much for telling us all about the book. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's a lot of fun and quite different from many of the slim volumes that we read. Are there more? Is there more poetry coming? This is You've had a sort of mad outpouring in the last three or so years, haven't you? Yeah, I went crazy in um, lockdown, I think, as a lot of people did. And no gigs for you, obviously. Well, I mean, funnily enough, you say that, but there were <laughs> amazingly there were online gigs yes but of I mean course. that's another story mm. but that yeah that that was kind of yeah it was an interesting period obviously but yeah I was very lucky that I kind of really got a beer in my bonnet and started to write and I really loved doing that so yeah there was two years of doing books about lockdown really kind of sit, looking around and writing what I saw and then this is a kind of a next moment really in the world in the same as in the same way as everyone has kind of put that period behind us so this isn't really about it's sort of lighter and isn't really about any any of that stuff this is about you know just any old things that are just sort of happening in the world and I feel like the next book I do will probably be something similar to this I love the I, I, the whole point of it was that I I wanted to make something which was kind of quick and easy and would fit would literally fit in your pocket and I like the idea of doing another one and you know Emily and I will meet up and we'll work out what that would be but because you don't want to like repeat exactly but there's a part of me that really does want to repeat it and kind of make all of the words very different but for it to look and feel like it's a kind of little brother of this so yeah I think in terms of poetry I'll probably just keep on um, churning this poetry out and um, curating it and working out which are my favourites and working out how it all pieces together and then have frequent conversations with Emily Juniper to hopefully get a structure to pin it all, pin it all together into a book. Well, do not stint on the gin and peppermint because I have oh, to say that not. really seemed to light the fire. <laughs> it's the fuel. <laughs> The fuel under the books. It does seem to be. Tim, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it. It was great fun. Thank you. Thank you. I feel very honoured to have been invited, so thank you. Still to come on the show, Devany Loza on the trail of the fictional women who run away from home. And to read all the pieces we talk about and much more, remember to subscribe to the TLS. Just head on over to our website at the-tls.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, if I said we're going to talk about 18th century gone girls, you might well wonder what I'm on about. Well, they're not the character in a thrilling, violent whodunit, but there is still plenty of sensation in their stories and also perhaps flights of feminist resistance, as the subtitle of the book we're discussing has it. Who better to write about this than the author and professor Devani Losa of Arizona State University, who's published 11 books about the 18th century novel and women writers. We are delighted that she's back on the podcast to talk to us today. Devani, thank you so much for joining us. So grateful to be here, Lucy and Alex. So first of all, the title of the book is Gone Girls, isn't it? It's very, it's catchy and attention grabbing. These are not the same sort of Gone Girl as Gillian Flynn invented, are they at all? No, and the author of the book, Nora Gilbert, is very clear about that, that she's using this to make a clever attempt to connect to today. But, you know, what what she's talking about does have a resonance in, in the 18th century, which is these feminist flights of resistance, as the subtitle of her book puts it. Gone Girls hooks you in, but then the feminist flights of resistance are what she fleshes out in the book itself. Mm. I thought it really interesting that flight is seen as resistance because... Because I was thinking about it, and you know, if you ask me what it means in an 18th century novel, as very much not a specialist, when women uh, flee or run away, I'd say it's mostly disastrous. I mean, my first thought was Lydia Bennett in um, Pride and Prejudice. She's sort of the most obvious one, isn't she? It's something that needs to be fixed and sorted out, usually by the the men. Yes, and Gilbert does talk about that, but that's halfway through the book. She starts earlier with this sense of women who, in the early novel, are not running away from something, but running away to something in many cases. Mm. So they are often running away to sexual desire. And in some of these early examples, uh, even based on real life situations. So there's a lot of meat there that hasn't really been directly attended to in the same way that Gilbert's doing it in the history of the novel. So Mm. it's not necessarily a state but it might be defiance. Does that bring us a little closer to this idea of resistance? Yes, and sometimes she does talk about escape as well, especially escaping from a sexual threat so or escaping from a forced marriage. But the idea is that it's done with some agency and urgency and in a way that readers are supposed to sympathize with. And there, I think, is the difference. Yes, because that's the surprising thing to me that, I suppose you could say Lydia Bennett's doing it for sexual desire, but but it's very much frowned upon, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And you know, she talks about, Gilbert talks about Austin as a kind of linchpin and in an interesting change moment where these stories of flight become shadow stories, where we see them more in the minor characters, but that they have mirroring kinds of effects on the main characters. So her section on Lydia Bennett talks about Lydia's similarities to Elizabeth and about Lydia as, in some senses, 
hovering between judgment and admiration mm. as a runaway woman. <laughs> That's so much your your response as a reader, isn't it? You don't, we don't really think of her as, as tragic, I don't think. We think of her as kind of spirited, if perhaps a little misguided. <laughs> yeah, exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exciting. The line that Gilbert uses is that Lydia is given a get-out-of-jail-free card and, you know, taking the Monopoly uh, reference there. And I think that is a very uh, amusing and interesting way of seeing it. You know, she's sort of rescued from this sense of tragedy with this uh, Darcy heading in to create the situation, the bribe, basically, that gets her out of trouble. But that to some extent, she's never really sorry about it. Mm, no, she's not, is she? She's absolutely full of herself. <laughs> Nor should she be, in my view. Can I just ask a quick, how does this intersect, or does it at all, with the idea of the, the picaresque novel? So we're not talking about a kind of Mole Flanders, which you might say has sort of agency written all over it. It's not, they're not those kinds of narratives, are they? No, and interestingly, I should say this is a very breezy fast-paced book. So it is definitely not covering everything. And Defoe is one author who's just really not here. And, you know, perhaps Maul Flanders could be and should be part of this conversation. But what Gilbert says she's doing, she says she's considering seven kinds or subgenres of fiction from Afrobent to 1901. And she says those are amatory, sentimental, gothic, manners, provincial sensation, and new woman fiction. And just to give you a sense, she does 40 novels by 25 authors in 225 pages. So when I say this is fast paced, breezy, I think you get a sense that is just an incredible amount of information to try to cover. Mm. And there are certainly moments where, uh, you know, my, but what about came up? And I think Daniel Defoe would be a good, but what about here? Mm -hmm. And so what, well, the characters that she does talk about, what do they achieve by their flight? Is it that generally they achieve their happiness and independence? So she is less, Gilbert in this book is less interested in the outcomes of these characters. And I think that's a, an interesting turn that we're seeing a lot more of in the history of the novel, studies of the history of the novel. And it is, I think, because we've spent so much time on beginnings and endings and so much emphasis, perhaps, that looking at the middles has become a kind of trendy thing to do in studies of the of the early novel, the 18th and 19th century novel. So what Gilbert's really focusing us on is the middle. And there you see a lot more complexity rather than looking at how does everything turn out? Do they end up in conventional marriages or do they end up tragic in you know, death in, as in Richardson's Clarissa, right? The mm. most obvious example there of a woman who tries to run away um, and doesn't end up getting to run away the most crucial time, correct? So what Gilbert says is that it's flight as a form of fight. And she's really more interested in the middle fight than she is and how it turns out. I think she would tell us that by looking at how it turns out, we are focusing on the wrong thing. I suppose that the, the thing that immediately occurs to one, that if it's in the middle of a flight, is for a start, all the immense practical difficulties that that would entail for a woman being on her own, a woman trying to find places to stay, trying to find money, trying to fight off advances of well-meaning or indeed otherwise. It's got a sort of air of danger from the get-go, hasn't it? It's a woman alone in flight. Absolutely. And what I love about this book is the way that it brings in things like changes in the law, 
changes in transportation, <laughs> the, the kinds of ways that made flight much more possible and much more admirable in the novel. And that sometimes these kinds of stories must have had a real life effect. Some were drawn from life, but some also must have inspired more independence or more fight. <laughs> and I think mm. that's a really interesting take. Mm. The one that drawn from life, uh, you mentioned, you said that Gilbert suggests that the first Gone Girl, as it were, was drawn from real life by the amazing Afro Bain. Yes, isn't that a terrific story? And I know some of your listeners will know Bain, but they won't necessarily know love letters between a nobleman and his sister. Uh, they'll know Orinoco, perhaps, which mm. this book does discuss a bit. But the one that it really spends more time on is love letters between a nobleman and his sister, which is not actually his sister, but his sister-in-law, even so quite racy, quite uh, made a scene and stay, was the 17-year-old Henrietta Barclay, who ran off with her brother-in-law, whose name was uh, Ford Lord Grey, the first Earl of Tankerville. And I do, mm. I do love, I do love that name, Tankerville. Doesn't that seem perfect for uh, the yeah. whole thing? <laughs> sounds made up, doesn't it? Really, it sounds like someone thought of an aristocrat's name from the 18th century. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, Bain talks about this flight from a parent's home into the a lover's arms, and it was on everyone's mind at the time. But Henrietta Barclay, when it finally went to court, her father brought legal action against um, his daughter's lover, uh, his daughter, one daughter's husband, the other daughter's lover. Uh, but that in court, Henrietta Barclay was not allowed to speak her own story. She was actually stopped from doing it. And what uh, Gilbert says that Bain is doing is taking the woman's side and trying to flesh out this sense of running away as an admirable act from her perspective. Mm, mm. Now, it's true that it doesn't turn out very well, but that is for Gilbert, that's OK. Because we're not focusing on the outcomes. That doesn't matter. It's it's the middle. It's, it's the act. <laughs> right. right. I suppose it's one thing to say don't focus on the outcome, but the novelists are necessarily focused on the outcome because they're the ones who decide what happens. So, I mean, it's it's not nothing, is it, the outcome? Right. And I think, you know, as I said, when I read this, there were a lot of moments where I thought, but what about? And I do think that this much material with this strong a thesis brings your but what about <laughs> impulse out. That said, I think Gilbert is absolutely right that we just haven't paid enough attention to these runaways. You know, we, we know about runaway brides in Hollywood film, but we really haven't paid enough attention to these admirable runaways in the early novel. They just haven't been a part of the conversation. We've been so focused on the desire and domestic fiction, the domesticity, the home parts of the novel's history that we've paid less attention to the uh, women who deliberately and admirably bolt. And I think that's a really cool part of this book. I was really interested in something you draw attention to that is in the book that Nora Gilbert draws attention to, which is how novelists sometimes co-opted the language of enslavement to talk about the way that their women were held in, in, in prison, in servitude in some way. Of course, it's, it's often white women's narratives. And that, that seems to be a very interesting kind of subtext to the book. I think so. And I think this is uh, something Gilbert does very carefully and very sensitively to my mind. She says she finds these moments in these novels feminist, but not intersectionally feminist. 
and she's you know very careful throughout the book to talk about ways that these early gone girls are to the side of other traditions. We might talk about captivity narratives, narratives and of enslaved people. Uh, she calls the text she treats compulsively heteronormative, which I think we can probably agree that's largely true. Mm. She also calls them pro-imperialist, and she's not. Uh, she doesn't shy away from the ways that she sees them as being implicitly racist, but she says that they are nevertheless feminist in a more limited and exclusionary way. And one of the reasons that she points to that is this connection, as you pointed out, between the heroine or the shadow story, the runaway woman, and using the language of slave or enslavement to describe what she's leaving, you know, what she's escaping from. Mm. And how does that play into something else that is mentioned in your piece, which is the idea, and one of her categories, indeed, the new woman novel? Just tell us a bit more about the new woman novel, because it's something that's sort of metamorphosed over many decades and centuries, isn't it? Right. And she has these very clever titles to her chapters. So that one's called The New Runaway Woman Novelist. And the new woman movement at the end of the 19th century was a deliberately feminist, deliberately independent take on what needed to happen next for women's roles and rights. So she goes into, I have to say, a lot of these authors I was not familiar with, maybe your listeners will be, but she goes into what happens when the new woman movement inspires these female characters to take flight, <laughs> to leave. And, and oftentimes it's leaving the country and not only leaving home, but going further away. So she talks about this one novel by Mona Carriage, The Daughters of Danos from 1894. Have either one of you read that one? Oh, no, many, or, many times. Nor have I heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Nor that, so nor not... the, new, the new Atalantis by another brilliantly named person, Della Rivier Manley. I mean, yes, yes. that's a wonderful name. Wonderful name. So Manly, I know, because I'm born 18th, 19th century novel person, mm. but these later ones I did not know. Mm. And, you know, The Daughters of Danos is about a woman leaving, not a, a bad man, just a very boring man. And I think that's an interesting turn, too, that there become a wider range of reasons to leave, including that your husband is boring. And, you know, I, I was said uh, in my review, I would really like to have read that one based on the the name of the hero alone, that he's uh, rather amusingly named Hubert Temperley, which seems like a great name for a boring husband. Poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but plot spoiler, the heroine goes back to him at the end. So I'm a little bit less tempted to read it as a result. I'd love okay. to be married to someone called Hubert Temperley. <laughs> I just would. Sorry. It doesn't sound so bad, does it? I would. (laughs) We should say as well, I mean, as you have mentioned, it's not only the book's not only talking about female characters, but it's mostly talking about female authors, isn't it? Because out of the, I can't remember how many you said there were, 25 novelists, it's only five of them are men. Is that right? Yes. Five of the 25 are men. But Gilbert talks very deliberately about why she makes that choice. And she says it's because the novel became a recognizable literary category around the same time that the professional woman writer also became a recognizable thing. So she says there's this question of women's rights and question of women's flights, and they're kind of baked into the genre of the novel from the first. And I think that's an interesting take and definitely supports why she's decided to go with a female author-focused book. She also notes that there was one previous book 
by a man named Carnahan that came out in 1977. That was about flight in the novel, but that he almost exclusively describes male novels. So I think she sees herself as really flipping the script that he started. Mm, breaking new ground. And so, Devani, are you persuaded by this thesis that it, that it's a strong strand? Is it something that you come across when you're writing your own books? I think I am persuaded. Uh, the sections on Austin were the ones where I felt myself most doing the what about. Mm. <laughs> you know, there were arguments where she's saying, we don't have runaway women who are admirable in Austin. And I thought, well, not a lot of people have read Lady Susan, but there is definitely a sense of Lady Susan's bolting here and there and perhaps quasi admirably. <laughs> and Lady Susan doesn't get treated. So that, that's the kind of moment where I think somebody who is probably an expert in the subject area would come to this with more of a sense of here are these things that go a little bit to the side or maybe even against the strong thesis. So I think anybody coming to this book interested in the history of the novel is going to find a lot of things to really prompt questions, but also to make them dig back into novels they already know and love. It also made me think, because obviously this is out with the, the books remit, but it made me think of how that has surfaced in 20th and 21st century fiction. I was thinking, okay, the bolter, obviously that word bolt comes up, at, you know, we have the bolter in Nancy Mitford, who, as far as I'm concerned, is a thoroughly admirable character. She's not at all frowned on, is she? She's only frowned on by... She shouldn't leave her daughter and yes. be quite so yes. mean. But yeah. however, you know, we're she, generally she's enjoying on her herself. Side. Yeah, that, uh, the wonderful thing in that is that she's enjoying herself and she's not supposed to be, and she really is. And Lucy, a, a book that we sometimes talk about that we both love, The Enchanted April, has got mm. sort of bolters in it. I was thinking of Hotel du Lac. And then I thought of unhappy sort of gone girls like Jean Reese. And I thought of even more recent things like Elizabeth Strout's. Lucy Barton book and I thought this they're not unrelated to those previous bolters and levers and runners I thought. I think that's beautifully put and you know the sense that the early novel was filled with damsels in distress who were being kidnapped and whenever they were taken away from home it was under someone else's volition. I think this is especially in the gothic novel the kind of uh, stereotype many of us have worked with. But you're showing, I think, that this idea of admirable bolters is centuries long and, uh, you know, comes from somewhere. Mm. Another one I've just thought of, actually, is Anne Tyler has two or three bolters and it's very strong. They, they, they have a difficult time, but also people, they, uh, they, you know, they find something. And I remember reading her talking about it and saying that lots of people came up to her after a couple of those and said, oh, my gosh, I thought just like that. <laughs> she was like, OK, you know. Yes, something... It's often linked with motherhood, isn't it? Yeah, not just, but yes. yeah. Not it's... only, but 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 often. Fascinating. Now I feel that every book I read, I'm going to be looking for the the bolter with the the agency and urgency, I think, was is, is what's coming through. I love that phrase. Yes, it's very good, isn't it? We cannot let you go, Devaney, if you don't mind, without us asking about your alter ego, Stone Cold Jane Austen. And has she been having great successes in roller derby recently? I can't say that I'm having great successes, but I am continuing to skate. And I live on the weekends in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I have been skating with the Roughneck Roller Derby League here. And it is an incredible group of skaters. I absolutely love that I'm still doing this. They've been very understanding that 
I'm not going to make attendance requirements, for instance, that are required to bout. So I don't know if I'm going to be competing again in the future, but I love that I'm still getting to skate with this group of strong skaters, mostly women, strong skaters, and very excited, very excited to still have this as part of my life. I'm bolting to roller derby, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm bolting very, very fast around the track. And I have to well. say, from our point of view, I, I mean, staying standing is an achievement. We regard that as a huge achievement, don't we, Lucy? We do. Yeah, yeah, we do. So moving, <laughs> moving on wheels very fast is just, you know, in another life, I'd love to do roller derby, but I'm so hopeless. I think I would just break all my bones immediately. I bet you do better than you think. We I may offer were. ourselves up as strong and independent cheerleaders, Lucy. I think <laughs> yeah, there you go. better suited to that. That's yeah. what we'll do. We'll come and cheer you on. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Devony, thank you so much for talking to us today. So lovely to talk to you both, Lucy and Alex, as always. time for this week our thanks go to tim key and devany loza and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.